0: Welcome to The Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of The Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about the numbers that matter most with the help of special guest Judith Miller. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host, Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Tim Fowler, and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. Just want to thank everybody for sending in ideas for this uh, show. Keep sending them. If you have any more, just send them to me at tim at remodelersadvantage.com. For many people, actually building... The project, In other words, putting the hardware together is what production's all about. But I'm reminded of something a good friend of mine, Sean McCadden, who we had on the show a few, few shows ago, shared with me at the remodeling show one year. Uh, he said, we're talking about the struggle that companies have for making profit and and keeping everything on budget. And his statement was, profit is made in the sale. It is production's job to protect it. And I thought, what a great way to visualize this thing. In other words, sales has responsibility, but the production team has a great deal of responsibility, too. So it's about building the project, whether it's a kitchen, bathroom, whole house, whatever it is. But it's also about making some money. So I have a great deal of fun uh, helping companies, particularly field staff, really understand how critical this is and how they contribute to the success of a company from a financial side. Most of them, when we start talking, it's all about miter joints and plumb level square, all those kinds of things. But I, I hope and I think that by the time we get done talking about it, they understand, yeah, all that's important, but making some money is important as well. So it's about the numbers. You're Obviously, you can't make a profit without looking at the numbers. But what numbers? In other words, what numbers are critical for the production team? Is it the balance sheet? Ah, I don't know. Sometimes I have trouble with the balance sheet myself. So I hope it's not that altogether. Is it simply job cost? Is it simply looking at an estimate? What about the blame game that we get into with all this kind of thing? You didn't give me enough money, or how come you didn't see this? Or why can't we just keep adding money, you know, and and still selling projects? All these things come up in the conversation of production. We want to focus in today on what are some of the numbers that we need to look at in production and as a company to make sure – that we're hitting the numbers that we need to hit. Now my own experience is I worked for a very large remodeler in the Washington DC area. We had all the computers and everything else, even 25 years ago to keep track of stuff. When I was in my own little business, I used an Excel spreadsheet, but I'd come home from the job site every day. I'd enter my hours in there. It would calculate my costs. I would look at my estimated versus actual and, uh, so I don't really care how we do it, but how, but doing it is really critical. What's your experience, Steve? Well, for me, I
0: mean, when I first started out, I mean, you just want to do projects and build, and uh, you know, knowing the numbers was just not a part of what <laughs> I did in the beginning. And I remember I had a small business coach through the Small Business Administration, and. His first thing he said was, you have to know your numbers. And from there, I just, you know, I had fit every symptom you can have of not budgeting, not job costing, and then had every positive symptom by putting things in budgeting and and job costing. So, you know, I, and and a lot of what I learned was from Judith, who we'll have on the show today, and a lot of her articles and stuff through Remodeler's Advantage. So that being said, I am excited to introduce Judith Miller. She's our resident financial expert here at Remodelers Advantage. She said she dreams about numbers and believes that the numbers both financial and job cost, tell the entire story of the company, success or failure. She started studying architecture at the University of Colorado, but after failing physics, took up economics and graduated with a BA in economics. Her continued love of architecture and design means she's in the right field now. Over the years, she was the second national trainer for Sage Master Builder Software, a popular speaker at both JLC Live and The Remodeling Show, wrote the monthly back page benchmark column for Remodeling Magazine between 2005 and 2011, and currently writes opinion in benchmark columns for the magazine. Her updated QuickBooks manual manual was recently republished to rave reviews. She's been with us since 2002 and always gets tremendous reviews. When she's not facilitating, she works with remodelers around the country to get their numbers ship shape and teaches strategic action groups on QuickBooks, labor burden, and strategic budgeting. Welcome to the show, Judith.
2: Steve, I am thrilled to be here. Tim, I am always glad to work with you and to talk with you. Thank you both. Well, thank you so
1: much for being with us. Um, I've heard you say a number of times you love the numbers. So just give us a little rundown on why you love the numbers so much. Many of us will go like, ah, but why do you love the numbers?
2: Well, you know what's really funny about you're, um, I can't tell you how many years I've been, well, how many years I've been in this business, and I've said I love the numbers, because they tell the story of the company. Wait, but, and the people go, yeah, and I go, yes, but if you can lay out a roof, which is very complicated, or can be very complicated, you can understand this. It's just where you put your focus. I love the numbers because they tell me and they can tell you how you're doing in sales, how efficient production is, whether or not you have overhead control and going back to the balance sheet, whether or not you really wanna protect your, yours and your family's future by protecting your asset in the company. So I believe that strategy is proven by the numbers. And anybody who tells me that they're doing great and they've got great people and all this other stuff, I always tell them, I'm from Missouri. Prove it. Now, that's not true. I'm not from Missouri, but prove it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I am really in agreement with you in the sense that when I look at somebody's numbers, particularly on the production side, because that's what I deal with most of the time, I can see the problems. And in many cases, I can diagnose the problems without actually having any more conversations with people just because I'm getting so familiar with seeing uh, the trends that are out there in the companies and what causes certain numbers to go in certain directions.
2: What's interesting is what you just said, the trends and what causes certain numbers to go in certain directions. So I could very easily ask you what your best, Favorite numbers are, but I'm sure I should tell you that one of my very favorite numbers right now, here we are in mid March uh, 2019, and what I'm seeing from clients all around the country is I'm seeing their overbilling numbers, which in the last, you know, we just beat the 10 year record of the greatest bull market ever. That their overbilling numbers are decreasing, and that means they're not making as many sales at the end of this year that they were making at the end of last year, and therefore taking upfront deposits. So I'm a bit concerned right now by that trend.
1: So it it sounds like uh, you're seeing maybe sales slowing down, or is there a problem with the remodeler just not pulling enough money up front?
2: Those two things could be true, good question, Tim. Uh, and I don't yet know uh, for each individual remodeler which uh, it could be, but I believe I see a slowing of the economy. And I've seen this, I believe, since October 2018. Yeah. That makes these numbers we're going to talk about even more important.
1: Yeah. So let's let's jump in. As I know during the last recession, uh, one of the things that I tried to get people to understand is that if you're having trouble selling jobs, look at your slippage, watch your slippage, because if you can control the slippage or get some grippage, then maybe you can hit your profitability without having to sell quite as much or to sell at quite a at high a, high a margin. So let's just talk about slippage a little bit. What, what are your, your thoughts on the amount of acceptable slippage and maybe even give us your definition of what slippage is?
2: That is a great point, and I agree with you, but let me just go a higher level up. It might well be true that in um, the people we know in the Remodeler's Advantage universe and the people who are listening to this, that you've had the luxury over the past five to 10 years maybe of saying, oh, I'm just gonna keep raising my prices because I have more opportunity than I can hardly deal with. This is a perfect time to raise prices, good for you but you haven't been paying attention to how much your jobs are truly costing you. Slippage hasn't been an issue perhaps because you've been able to raise your prices. Now's the time to start looking at quote unquote slippage or on the other side of the equation, grippage. Many people I know just look at the bottom line of their estimated versus actual job costs and they say, great, we're doing great. And I go, yeah, but when you look down at the detail, you can see that you totally overbid for electrical. You made a lot of money on electrical. And look at this, you're slipping in labor. So I think the detail of your job cost information is more important in determining which line items you're making money on, which line items you're not estimating correctly, and which line items you're losing money on. Back to your initial question, slippage is the difference between what you estimated the job and how you finally produced it. It could also be grippage. If you didn't beat, meet your budget, if you exceeded your budget, you're slipping. If you beat your budget, you're gripping. And both of those numbers are problematic. So let's just let's shift over a little bit to
1: just general job costs here. Because I'm, I'm always interested to know what is a, kind of an acceptable level of cost of goods sold versus overhead versus overall volume in terms of percentages. Do you have a, a notion? If I, in other words, if it, you were talking with my company and I showed you that my uh, cost of goods sold was um, 85% of
2: my annual revenue, would that mean
1: something to you in terms of a percentage?
2: It absolutely would, and it would scare me no end because 85% means you're only getting 15% gross margin. Gross margin is the dollar left over after paying all the job costs from the income you produced on that job. So if the income is 100% and your job costs are 85%, it leaves 15% to cover all your overhead, to produce a profit, and to save some money in the company to protect the company against any possible... Um, downturn in the economy as well as to invest for future growth. So that being said, some companies, they're not they don't tend to be in our remodelers advantage universe. Some companies run on a high volume, low margin model. That means they have to sell an awful lot at fifteen percent gross margin per end, 85% cost of goods, to be able to cover their um overhead. That's not the typical remodeler. The typical remodeler should be making, um, in gross profit percentages, should be making a minimum of 25%. And right now we're seeing, or we've been seeing in the last uh, five to eight years, we've been seeing 35% gross margin, which means a 65% cost of goods.
1: So if someone were listening to this and wanted to, Kind of look at their company a little bit, they might say if they're in the 60 to 70% range, they might be okay.
2: They might be okay if they don't have a whole bunch of their job costs in overhead, as some people I have recently worked with do. They had all of their labor, which was some $400,000, which was something like, you know, 15% of total income. They had all their labor down below the line. uh, overhead. And I was confused when I was looking at the job cost because there was the labor and the job cost, but it was in their profit and loss statement in overhead, which oh, well. is not.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little more subtle than $400,000. Uh, let's talk about those indirect costs that are our real cost of doing the the jobs but are quite often assigned to the overhead because you can't really put a dollar amount on it like or a, a, a code on it, if you will, like cell phone uh, bills. It's like, what are you going to do? Divide up every cell phone bill by five jobs and assign you know, $3 to each job. Or, and so what, what do you do about that? How do you get that information into a place where you really do know how much your jobs are costing you.
2: Let me start with a story about cell phones, because I think that is a great reference. And then we can talk about indirect. I could talk about indirect all day long. (laughs) But years ago, 20 years ago, when I was still living in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, a potential new client who I was really excited to work with called me and said, come over, please, and help me figure out my job costs. And he was taking every single phone bill, uh, and this was just in the early cell phones. He was taking yeah. every single cell phone bill. He was breaking it down between the person who had that cell phone, what job they were on. He was assigning taxes to it. It was a gorgeous spreadsheet. This is <laughs> the owner of the company. Right. He's, I said, you are spending too much time on this little tiny stuff. The juice is not worth the squeeze. Right. He subsequently went out of business. Uh, he went bankrupt. And I kind of said to myself, I predicted this i told you you were spending too much time on the little stuff however the little stuff does matter so you can't see me but i everybody raise your hands in the air both hands <laughs> the very top line income on your profit and loss should be income only from the jobs you do that you sell to the marketplace So if you've got rental income, that doesn't belong up there. If you've got a little bit of interest income, that doesn't belong up there. Income is only from jobs you produce and it is impacted by your over-under billing number, which we call WIP. That's another conversation entirely. Then we come down to the cost of goods that you just mentioned, Tim, which is cost of goods means job costs. So anything that relates to work being done that you sold to the client, that's income, right? anything that's being done to produce that income is a job cost so materials are a piece of cake right you go pick up some lumber you go pick up some appliances piece of cake subcontract that's a piece of cake too you sign a subcontract or a trade contract with a um, a specialty contractor they come to the drywall they bring the drywall etc that's all part of job cost but then we get into the the fuzzy area called indirects so indirect Costs are those costs that relate to work being done on a job, but are difficult um, to apply to an individual job. Cell phones is a perfect example. Field uniforms, small tools. Have you ever looked at people's profit and loss? Down in overhead, it says small tools. Right. It, it can amount to a lot of money. Yeah. Blue tape, clean, <laughs> saw blades, sharpening, maybe even you know miter saws and all those kinds of things that people um, keep in the back of the employees trucks how about field vehicle expense that can really add up but when you think about the indirect expense range which to me is a giant pool capturing all of these individual types of costs I've just mentioned the highest amount of those typically is non-billable field time so I wrote down some Numbers that I think are of critical importance. And one of them has to do with labor, field labor efficiency. Oh. Well, talk to so us about Tim, it. Tell us about Tim, it. Yeah. Tim, if if you're one of our people and they say to you, yeah, but my guys, they're 100 guys. I'm sorry. My people, they're 100% efficient on the job. They work on the jobs all the time. What right. would you say to them?
1: I would say I think you're fooling yourself. I, I think there's uh, – <laughs> Not, I think, I know there, in fact, I figure about seven hours of, uh, you know, efficient labor on a job site is pretty good per
2: day. Seven hours. Hold on. I'm going to do a quick calculation. Okay. That equals 87.5% efficiency. Right. Nice work, Tim. So I think you and I've talked about this over the years, Tim. Right. But I, I think, uh, For example, a lead carpenter should be seventy-five percent billable to the job they're on. I think a um an apprentice carpenter or a carpenter should be eighty-five percent billable. I think a laborer should be ninety to ninety-five percent billable. But where does that uh in your case the twelve point five percent go? Where does that twelve percent twelve point five percent go where they're not really billable to the job? It goes into indirect And then we spread it through all the jobs that they're working on, um, that all the field employees are working on during this time period. Now, let me say this about that. In February of 2018, uh, together with Remodeless Advantage, I did a webinar on this subject and it discussed how much time is in indirect, what indirect should include, and what your labor burden for your field employees should include. So. There should be a link, please. Thank you. To this, to the February uh, 2018 labor burden webinar I gave. Okay. So, so let's go. Let's let me break in and say this about that one more time. Labor efficiency is to me one of the greatest components of the indirect expense range, but all these costs should be applied to the jobs, to the field employees, so that you're actually using an estimated labor rate that has a direct correlation to how much is really hitting the jobs.
1: Yeah, because if you're not getting that estimate right, then you've you've missed it. And and so if anybody doesn't know how to do the indirect uh, allocations, there's lots of different ways to find out. Uh, Judith's book certainly covers uh, how to do all that. I'd like to kind of slip in here and say, how, how do you think a company can really find out where the slippage is? Do you have any... Thoughts on looking at the numbers and figuring out, like you know, there's slippage, but where is the slippage?
2: That is a great question, and I think a lot of people don't spend enough time answering that question uh, for themselves. I think, or for their company, or for their production team. I use the eighty-twenty rule, Pareto's principle, for everything. I raised my kids using the eighty-twenty <laughs> rule. And the 80-20 rule says that 20% of the input gives 80% of the value. And so if you imagine that in any construction company, you only have five primary cost types, labor plus burden, materials, equipment, trade contract expense, and this tiny little thing called other, (laughs) for every individual company, 20% or only one of those cost types is gonna uh, provide the greatest amount of risk. For companies that use a lot of field labor, it's labor. For companies who use a lot of trade contractors, it's change order control. So if you look at your, first of all, your budget for the company as a whole, and you anticipate spending, for example, over years, I've seen that materials are 19 to 22% of total um, income uh, income on the profit and loss. So you look at profit and loss 100%. You look at cost of goods as 60%. Materials tend not to vary too much. The subcontract percentage can increase significantly depending on where the company is in the model. Are you primarily in-house labor? Or are you trade contract labor? So if you look at your budget and you see you've estimated 35% for total field labor and you're at 42%, you know there's something wrong with either your budget or your job costs. If you look at your job costs from a 30,000 foot perspective, which means, well, let's just look at the job costs on a main heading basis, general conditions, site work, concrete, demo, uh, steel. I'm using the, um, CSI numbering system right here not the NAHP and then you get down to six which is carpentry then you can look at framing finish siding um trim right Mm -hmm. how do you estimate not just the dollars and this is really important but the hours so you should have if your labor is a high uh, risk factor that means you've got plenty of in-house labor you should be looking at your job costs from two. Points. You should be looking at your job cost, estimate versus actual for dollars, as well as actual estimate versus actual for hours.
0: So, Julia, that, that kind of plays right into my question in terms of what numbers should I be showing my employees, specifically the field staff? And do you feel that manages and motivates uh, them to be better? What are those numbers?
2: That's a really great question, Steve. Mm-hmm. I like hours better than dollars, because especially as you start to talk to your field staff about the components of their cost to the company, they understand totally that they have a gross wage of X. They understand totally that you're paying their uh, payroll taxes on their behalf, right? Mm-hmm. They understand workers' comp, theoretically. Do they understand the other components of labor burden, which are how much do their benefits cost? If you, give, um, if you give a week of vacation, for example, that costs almost 2% of their gross wages. They don't necessarily consider that cost when they look at their estimated labor costs. However, when you show them the estimated hours compared to the actual hours, They start to realize, I believe, first of all, how they're coding their hours from the field and how it's hitting the um, reporting and the importance there. A lot of people use an awful lot of entries on their time cards, which I think is a waste of time. Most field people don't wanna spend their time plugging into their phone or plugging into a piece of paper 30 different labor codes. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. But if you show them over time that framing hours over the last three jobs we've done have been estimated at 750 and we've used 2,520, which tends <laughs> to be, you know, then they start to go, whoa, what's wrong with that? Now, the question is to me is not what's wrong with the field, but what's wrong with the communication between the sales, as Tim mentioned, the estimating, and the production.
1: So one of the places where I've encouraged companies to look at their numbers carefully is in the thing that I like to call the debrief. Uh, Some people call it autopsy, whatever. Do you have any tips on how to make that a useful function? Because what I've seen in many companies, it's a big finger-pointing exercise that takes hours to do a, a job, and nothing comes out of it except Uh, unhappiness. So do you have any thoughts on how to use those numbers to effectively help a company change what they're
2: doing? I'm going to see if I can answer that first from a high level. Okay. The uh, meeting you just described, I have sat in some of those meetings. I'm squirming already. (laughs) This this is a culture problem. This is a big picture problem with the company as a whole. Okay. And until that problem is resolved, the people in the field are going to feel as if they have to protect their point of view. Now, maybe, maybe and this is always interesting to me, I can't tell you how many times I've said or I've asked the question, who does the estimating here? And the owner says, I do the estimating. <laughs> who does the sales? I do the sales. Great. How do you estimate, for example, a door? And they go, well, and they hold up their finger and they say, when I was in the field, it used to take me 45 minutes to hang a door. So I I give them 45 minutes to hang a door. And I'm going, they're probably using an hour and a half. Right. And there's all, there tends to be, there tends to be this disconnect um, between owners who do the estimating Yep. And the field people who do the work. So that's one of the first places I would start to look. Have you okay. seen that, Tim?
1: Oh, yes. And I, I, I agree. I One of my funny catchphrases is, the older I get, the better I was. And I think it just gets worse. <laughs> it just gets worse and worse the farther out of the field we are. And, and you know, to be nicer, I think, to the owners, it's not just the owner problem. You take a project manager out of the field for more than a couple of years and they start thinking the same way when I was out there you know it only took me this long as opposed to you know this is what it really takes for us to do it.
2: That's a really interesting perspective and one of the things I remember uh, and this is circling back to try to answer your question in greater detail years ago somebody on the East Coast close to you actually, Asked me in because they said, you know, we don't have any way of estimating windows. Windows are all over the board, <laughs> and I said, well, it should be pretty easy, right? It's either a bay or it's a flush or it's a this or a that, and I can go online and I can pull up the cost of that window. And they said, no, we're getting install installation costs widely variable between the um, between our individual jobs. We can't estimate them correctly. So we spent about six months drilling down to just Windows, and we came up with the fact that certain people on the job site weren't very good at installing Windows, and other people were excellent at installing Windows, but yet they had a problem with flashing, and then there was callbacks <laughs> and water issues, right?
1: Right, right.
2: Right. So w- So what we did was we decided that we were going to use this logic that we applied to Windows to define which items on our cost code list, our job scope work list, were always wildly variable for the next three jobs on any one of them, whether it's demo. Demo is a problem. Supervision tends to be a problem if these things are done in-house. We can talk about another thing I wrote down when I knew we were going to have this conversation. Another thing I wrote down was meeting the schedule and punch list. <laughs> yeah. But so we, we went through each of these jobs with the production team to define what we wanted to look at for the next six months. And the first three jobs, we were going to look just at windows. And so we were going to do more detail than we typically did, than just labor, material, equipment, trade contract on windows. We were going to look at the window cost, we were going to look at the delivery, we were going to look at the uh, how high it was on the job. Some of these um, windows w- they were talking about were three stories up, so the cost there would increase significantly, right? Right. Definitely. And then the next thing we looked at was, I do remember this, demo, because demo, we couldn't end up with a good square foot price for demo that would make estimating it easier. So we started looking at demo. So I would suggest that you just pull out, and you're calling it the debrief, pull out three or four jobs that went significantly over or under what you anticipated. Highlight use the 80-20 rule. Highlight the line items or the scopes of work that were um, 80% over, for example. And if something's 180% over, but it's only $350, (laughs) I don't care about it. It's got to be a big dollar, and it's got to have an impact on how you estimate and how you produce in the field. And get everybody together uh, around a coffee table with um, pizza and dig into it. Have them solve the problem. Well, wow,
1: just that's that's just fantastic. So I just got got one, a little more time here, um, but what do you think is the most important thing about hitting a budget? And 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 we can talk in terms of a company budget or a job budget, because I I personally feel like it's kind of the same same mechanism. But this is one of the challenges that we have. Is setting the budget, but then actually hitting it. So, do you have some thoughts on what might be uh, a critical aspect of hitting a budget, whether it's a job budget or a company budget?
2: That is a really great question, and no one has ever asked me that. I'm going to relate the company budget because what you said was absolutely true. I'm going to relate the company budget to a combination of multiple job budgets, right? Right. And so, therefore, if you look at your your job cost budgets estimate to actual if you look at them consistently with every single payroll if you've got in-house labor or with every single um bid you get from a trade contractor and manage the change orders in uh in a what are we going to call it in an atmosphere of let's solve this problem, let's not point fingers. The first time you start pointing fingers, (laughs) you should take away their Starbucks card or whatever, because (laughs) this is a problem we have to solve together. But to the degree that you leave it to the last 80% of the job, don't call me and ask me to help you figure it out. You should be looking at it as the job is uh, signed. The production people, The estimator and the salespeople should all be looking at the job before it's finally signed with a client. The trade contractors should all have secure signed bids before you start and um, an understanding that you won't pay them for anything that's over that bid as described. So I, I love drywall. I worked with a great drywaller for years back in the Bay area and every single time, he knew that there was a change order. He would send that out to the um, to the contractor, and he'd get it approved, and we would uh, pay for it. But he had three draws, right? Uh-huh. He had stocking, he had hanging, and then he had taping and texturing. And we knew that the three draws were how he was going to get paid. If anybody saw him get paid more than uh, draw number one, they would call him on it. They would manage the change orders. The contractor would manage the change orders as at the same time, they were looking at the job costs. So I think it has to do with consistent review.
1: Yeah, I, that's kind of my general take on it as well. So as we wrap this up, Judith, just maybe uh, last little bit of wisdom for the listeners out there on uh, on managing by the numbers. Just something that might uh, get them thinking about either doing it more, or doing it better, or um, – I'll leave it up to you.
2: A song comes in my head, which I'm not going to sing to you, but the words are <laughs> Slo- slow down, you move too fast. Ah, we could all sing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shall we start? One, two, three. Uh, the, the point, though, that came, the reason it came to my mind is I see so many owners trying to manage, buy, and control so much data i think again the juice is not worth the squeeze i think for every individual position there should be two or three metrics that they look at all the time for production management to me it's always client satisfaction first it's always um job productivity and if that's job estimate versus actual hours or it's dollars if the estimate is really good then it can be that and because employee satisfaction leads to customer satisfaction, leads to better uh, margins and better production. Those three are always at the very top of my list. Employee satisfaction can drive customer satisfaction and can drive gross margin. So that's what I want the company as a whole to maintain a look at for the owner I think the owner should be looking at their estimating accuracy and their sales funnel. If they've got production management in place, that production management is managing to the GP. All Everybody's managing the customer satisfaction. Did I answer your question?
1: Very good. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Judith, whether it's in person or on this podcast, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to thank you for being on the show today.
2: I thank you both for asking me, and I'm really grateful to be able to talk about my favorite, favorite topic, numbers in remodeling. Thank you. Take
1: care.
0: Take care, Judith. Bye-bye. Well, Tim, once again, we knew it would be, but that was a fantastic show. And when Judith gets going, I start to get a little bit of a pressure in my head, but this was awesome. And I think it's, she she's so much valuable information.
1: You know, it's one of those things you kind of have to go back and listen two or three times because there's so many little subtle things. And the, the topic is so big that it's hard to, to zero in in just this little little bit. But I, I do want to just, I asked specifically the debrief question because um, it's a real challenge for companies to use that that system effectively. And I, I really love the fact that she said, it could be a problem with just the culture of the company isn't set up to talk uh to talk in a way that helps it's set up to point fingers and and i thought that was just a fantastic observation on her part well good
0: well i know we'll hopefully have her on the show again soon because there's just there's so much to impact, to unpack and uh she's just She could talk for days and years about this stuff. So we'll look forward to having her on again. We do thank Judith Miller for joining us today. And we always want to thank you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. And
1: remember, we're helping the bottom line through production training.
0: This has been another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com slash consulting to learn more.